0: Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded, and he fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and he named it Yahweh Nisi or Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek, generation after generation. I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning a message uh, the Lord has laid upon my heart that I've just uh, simply titled, This is How I Fight My Battles. This is How I Fight My Battles. If you will, one more time, pray with me and for me. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I thank you once again, Lord, for every precious person in this house and joining us online today. I pray for the next few moments, Lord, that you would decrease me and move me out of the way that your Holy Spirit may be increased within me. I pray that you would anoint these lips of clay to deliver not my words, Lord, but your words. And I pray, Lord, that your word would be delivered today in the power and the demonstration of your Spirit, that you would anoint every ear to hear and every heart to receive what you would speak to your people today. And we'll give you the glory, the honor, and the praise in advance. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said... Amen. You may be seated uh, this morning. Obviously, in this passage of Scripture that I've just read to you, there's a battle going on. And how many knows that anytime time the Lord's church is trying to move forward and make progress for the kingdom, there's always a battle going on, right? Every time in history that you look down through history and read about revivals, there's always been a battle before or after the revival. And if you're willing to spend the time and energy to research the great revivals of the past, it will make you hungry and passionate to see God move again in our lives, in our day, and in this time. And we have recently been seeing a move of God, but I pray that it doesn't stop there. Say amen, somebody. I pray that it spreads throughout this nation and that it grows and grows. as we look back through history, the church's first great revival, of course, occurred when 3,000 Jews came to Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. That was likely, according to most Bible scholars, on May the 24th in A.D. 33. And that awesome beginning was a foretaste of what would happen time and time again all throughout history. By the year 300 A.D., approximately 14 million people called themselves Christian And by the year 500, the number neared 40 million. And since the early 1700s, God has brought a number of notable revivals. And we're going to talk about some of them today. The first of which is the First Great Awakening. It's known as the First Great Awakening. In a new world, a series of revivals that was known as the Great Awakening spread throughout the American colonies between the years of 1725 and 1760. Under preachers like Gilbert Tennant, Jonathan Edwards, and evangelist George Whitfield, the revivals reached their peak from 1740 to 1742. At the same time as the Great Awakening in America was the Wesleyan Revival in England. At the time of John Wesley's death in 1791, Methodists numbered 79,000 in England and 40,000 in America." One of those great revivals of the American past took place in the late spring and the early summer of the year 1801 at Cane Ridge in central Kentucky, where as many three, as 3,000 people were converted. A pastor by the name of Barton Stone, who had been called to serve this little Methodist church by Daniel Boone, decided to call a four day meeting for personal renewal and revival. The members of the Cane Ridge Church, and most of the people around them were farmers. And since the crops had been planted and they were waiting on the harvest at the end of the summer, they willingly laid down their plows for this meeting. And at that May meeting, there were many in that local church that began to experience what was called the fullness of the Spirit, or as later Methodist and Holiness preachers would call it, Perfect love. We can read accounts of what took place, and when we read those accounts, we understand it as they were receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking in other tongues. That's documented in history. Since the May meeting had gone so well, Pastor Barton Stone and his small church decided that they would host another meeting in August that would be just before the harvesting of their crops. The only difference was this time the little church had now spent about two and a half months in revival and the word began to spread about what was taking place. And as the word spread in the surrounding communities, people came from everywhere. So many people came to the revival at Cane Ridge that the United States Army had to come in and help manage the crowds. Can you imagine? The U.S. Army did their own count, and they said that there were over 20,000 different people who came to this Cane Ridge revival meeting. The little church itself could seat at maximum capacity only about 250 people. So the overflow spilled out into several pastures, all across the community and pulpits were set up so that people could hear the word and respond in old-fashioned altars. James Finley, who was converted and who would later become a circuit-riding Methodist preacher, described the scene in his personal journal. Here's what he said. He said, The noise of that revival was like the roar of the Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. He said, I counted seven ministers, all preaching Preaching at one time in various areas of the pastures, some on stumps, some on wagons, and one was standing on a tree which had in falling lodged itself against another. Some of the people were singing while other people were praying. Some were crying for mercy in the most piteous accents, while others were shouting most vociferously. While witnessing these scenes, a peculiarly strange sensation, listen at this, such as that I had never felt before, immediately came over. Over me. My heart began to beat tumultuously. My knees began to tremble. My lips began to quiver, and I felt as though I must fall to the ground. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of people there. And he said, At one time, I saw at least 500 people swept down in a moment, as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened upon them, and then immediately followed shrieks and shouts shouts that rented the very heavens. This experience, as we know it today, was being slain in the spirit, but it happened in the Cane Ridge Revival. And see, it wasn't too long after this that the entire American frontier was blazed with revival. Peter Cartwright, whom you may have heard of, was another Methodist circuit rider who came to the forefront of the the revival scene and God was pouring out his spirit on these shouting Methodists as they would call them and holiness preachers and people and it was during this time that the camp meetings began their ascent in the history of American churches among the known preachers of this time was none other than Francis Asbury as you've heard of Asbury University otherwise known as the prophet of the long road because he traveled over 300,000 miles on horseback to preach over 16,000 sermons as revival once again began to blaze America. And by 1806, this second great awakening had reached Williams College in Massachusetts. There, there were five students that prayed during a thunderstorm under the shelter of a haystack. Four of the five committing themselves to becoming missionaries, and this was known as the Haystack prayer meeting and from the haystack prayer meeting which is what it came to be called was the beginning of the American foreign missions movement as we know it because four young people, uh, five students prayed under the shelter of a haystack and then four of them committed themselves to become missionaries and that's the first documented account of people taking the gospel overseas in 1806 and the prayer meeting revival or the layman's revival you may have heard of began as a prayer meeting of six people on Fulton Street in New York City in 1857. This revival spread quickly throughout the world. Jeremiah Lanfier, you may have heard of, the neighborhood missionary to poor immigrants for the North Dutch Church in New York City. He became burdened about the city. He was burdened about conditions in the city and the country. And on September the 23rd in 1857 he launched a weekly noon, hour long prayer meeting for businessmen in a third floor classroom of the North Dutch Church. Nobody showed up for the first half hour. Six men straggled in to pray the second half hour. Twenty people came to pray the next week and more than 30 attended the weekly prayer meetings the following month. The religious papers began to publicize the Fulton Street prayer meeting late that October and by early November it had become a daily prayer gathering with some 200 people from a wide variety of denominations attending every single day. Other prayer meetings began to spring up all across New York City and by the following April 10,000 people were gathering at different locations daily for prayer in New York City. These developments proved to be so significant that even the secular press began to publish regular updates of this block prayer movement and its spiritual and social benefits to society and over the next two years a million converts were added to American churches and a million churches in England and in Ireland think about that then the Welsh revival began in 1904 under the preaching of Evan Roberts within two years Two years, 100,000 converts were added to the Welsh church. More than 5 million people came to Christ as the revival spread throughout the world. And as part of this same outpouring of the Holy Spirit, revival came in 1906 to a mission church led by William Seymour in a dilapidated building on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And the Azusa Street revival would become the formative event for early Pentecostalism as we know it today. And then the Church of God, whom we are a part of, on August the 19th, 1886, began in Monroe County, Tennessee, near the North Carolina border. A former Baptist, nothing wrong with Baptist, I was a former Baptist myself. A former Baptist, Richard Green Sperling, preached in a mill house along Barney Creek and ate People formed a Christian union for the purpose of following the New Testament as their rule of faith and practice, giving each other equal rights and privilege to interpret the Scripture and sitting together as the Church of God. 21 years later, the growing movement formally adopted the name Church of God. And 10 years, 10 years after that organizational meeting, a revival at the Shearer Schoolhouse in nearby Camp Creek. North Carolina Introduced the doctrine of sanctification To the community Opposition to this doctrine Led to severe persecution But a spirit of revival prevailed And the holiness believers Experienced an outpouring Of the Holy Spirit That included speaking in other tongues And divine healing Such experiences prepared the way For the explosion of the Pentecostal movement In the early 20th century And today Church of God Ministries include more than 8 million members in I don't even know how many nations, countries, and territories now. Over 200 nations, countries, and territories. And some nearly 40,000 congregations serve around the world. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying we need revival again. We need revival again. An earth-shaking, church-changing revival is what we need to see again. But can I tell you this morning that all revivals have a price tag on them. They're not cheap. They don't come easy. They require great devotion and personal sacrifice. Revivals will bring the church back to prayer. Revivals will return the church to a hunger for the Word of God. Revival will jolt the church from spiritual stagnation and deadness of heart. Revivals will stimulate the church to heartfelt, sincere worship. Revival brings the church to a place of intercessory prayer that is marked by tears and travail. Revivals cause commitment. Listen to your pastor this morning. Commitment to holiness and separation from the world. Revivals fill the church with passion and godly desire. But the question of the day is this. Who is hungry for revival? I got about two. Who is hungry for revival? Do you know what it means to be hungry? Anybody know what it is to experience hunger pains? When you don't have food around you. But your stomach begins to growl, and you realize, I need to put something in there. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Can I tell you that the church needs to get hungry for revival? We need to get hungry for an authentic encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want our young people to have an authentic encounter with Jesus. Because there's going to come a day when they're not going to have their youth pastors to come to they're not going to have their pastor to come to. There's going to come a day when you, as old as some of you are, have depended on somebody else to get a prayer through for you most of your adult Christian life. It's quiet now. But there's going to come a time when you need to be able to get a hold of God for yourself. We need a revival of individualized experience that will reshape and change the church as we know it. Because the church is full of people, but I'm afraid many times it's not full of regenerates. What do you mean, pastor? I'll get to it in just a minute. If there's one scripture that prevails when you begin to look at the birth of revival, I believe it's always this one, and a lot of us can quote it. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then, say then, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. See, this verse, if you can leave it up there for just a moment, Jordan. This verse is contingent Upon us doing something. If the people will humble themselves. If the people will pray. If the people will seek God's face. If the people will turn from their wicked ways. If all of these requirements are fulfilled. Then God will begin to shift things in the spiritual world. Then he'll hear from heaven. He'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Just knowing what God will do if we will do our part should make every single one of us seek to pray and deepen our spiritual walk with the Lord. Revival and spiritual awakening has always taken root when the church finds a place of prayer. I said revival and spiritual awakening has always taken root when the church finds a place of prayer. But if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, most of our deepest praying... Comes only when we're facing pain and challenges ourselves in this life. If we are willing to prevail and overcome the delays, the obstacles, and the unfavorable circumstances, God will help us, I believe, as never before, to experience both revival and harvest in this day that we live in. I want to talk a little bit this morning, though, about the battlefield of prayer. How many people know prayer is a battlefield? The battlefield of prayer. It all starts with prayer. The kind of prayer that's not only interested in personal renewal, but also is motivated toward praying for others to be saved. It's going to a place of prayer with a fight already in your spirit. Uh, a great theologian by the name of Ol Hallisby, I believe is the way you say his name, said this. He said, the secret prayer chamber, listen, the secret prayer chamber is a bloody battleground. Here, Violent and decisive battles are fought out. Here the fate for souls for time and eternity is determined in the solitude of prayer. If the church can get on its knees and wrestle and agonize in prayer with the shield of faith, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray always with all forms and levels of prayer under the leading of the Holy Spirit. It will become the most militant army of God in this earth. But the text that we read today has some lessons that can help us, I believe, to attain to what God longs to give us. And The first thing that we note in the text is that the enemy was attempting to defeat Israel. The Amalekites were some of the nastiest, most devious enemies that Israel would face. They were predators who worked every possible angle to take advantage of the weakness of their enemies. They weren't an enemy who would face them head to head. They would sneak around and attack them from a distance or attack them from behind. Or they would catch them in a precarious spot crossing a river or navigating a pass in the mountains or during times of rest. And then they would attack. They would also attack the women and the children. They would attack the elderly. They never would face up to the warriors because they were afraid of the true warriors. And this is what happened to David in 1 Samuel chapter 30. While he was out battling, the Amalekites attacked Ziklag, and they took the wives and the children of David and his men as hostages before burning down the entire city. And this technique was nothing new for them. They had been doing it like this for years. And as a matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18 said this, Never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. That's what the Amalekites did best. They would indirectly attack at the weakest points. Can I tell you, church, that this is the way the devil is still operating today? He'll always attack at the weakest points. He'll always attack unexpectedly. And he'll always attack unfairly. It can be so discouraging sometimes in this life, if we're just being real this morning, it can be so discouraging sometimes when we're fighting the enemy. Because just as soon as you, we read this scripture, as soon as you put your arms down, you'll find yourself under attack. There's three hindrances that stand in our way when we are endeavoring and striving to bring revival on spiritual battlefields. You know what those three things are? If you're going to write anything down, write these down. The three things are these. Our wants, our enemies, and our sins. But if you'll stay with it, In the end, you're going to discover that you'll thank God for every one of those three obstacles because they'll bring you into a deeper relationship and a deeper faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. They will serve as a vehicle for your victory, but you have to acknowledge them. The first one is our wants. Our wants are just like those that Israel had to worry with. Because, see, Israel, they didn't pack up any staples from Goshen to help them while they were in the wilderness. They didn't take any food, they didn't take any water, they didn't take any extra clothes. But God's blessings brought them manna from heaven. His provision made a rock to follow them around that would provide water for them. And His promises made sure that their clothes and their shoes never wore out during that entire wilderness journey. Our wants. Secondly, our enemies. And our enemies are just like those that Israel had to face. They were not a trained army when they were fleeing from Pharaoh and his army. But God used a cloud and a sea to destroy them. The Israelites were delivered by Moses praying on the mountain. Joshua had a long day to help him accomplish his task. And can I tell you that every single battle that you face will wind up in praise somewhere down the line if you just keep fighting. Did you hear me? Every single battle that you face will wind up in praise somewhere down the line if you'll just keep fighting. But there's something significant. Listen to your pastor this morning. There is something significant about lifting up your hands. There's something significant about lifting up your hands in worship. There's something significant about lifting up your hands in praise. There's something significant about lifting up your hands in prayer because Lifting up your hands is a sign of surrender. But I want you to listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. In every, say every, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. There's something significant about lifting up your hands. And our sins this morning are just like those that Israel had to face. They could, Israel could look in the direction of that brazen serpent. They could find healing and relief. Their sins, though, had gotten them into the predicament that they were in. But there was still, thank God, salvation despite their sin. Is anybody thankful for that this morning? Their sins had gotten them into this predicament, but there was salvation in spite of their sin. The way of redemption through the sacrifices brought them a pattern of worship. The trials of prayer that we face have to deal with those same three things. You will have wants in this life that get in the way. You will have enemies in this life that get in the way. And you will have sins and failures in this life that will weigh you down. But you have to continue in prayer. You know what prayer's greatest trial is, though? Our weariness. When we get tired. What do you do with the weariness of continued prayer? Can we just be transparent this morning? Has anybody ever prayed for something so much and you didn't see the answer that you got wore out praying with it? Praying for it? hmm. What do we do with the weariness of continued prayer? This is what Moses experienced in the heat of the battle on that day. He got tired, plain and simple. Moses got tired. The devil does his best to take advantage of you in your times of spiritual weariness. The devil will let a spiritual lethargy, if you will, overtake us so that it will cause us to Seek after sleep, spiritual sleep and slumber. You know what Charles Spurgeon said? Charles Spurgeon said, a slumbering spirit is the best friend prayerlessness can find. A slumbering spirit is the best friend prayerlessness can find. It's interesting to me that Joshua never got weary in fighting, but Moses got weary in praying. Did you hear me? Hmm. The more spiritual, I believe this is the reason. The more spiritual an exercise is, the more difficult it is for the flesh and blood man to maintain it. That's why it's easy. I'm going to preach on this for just a few moments. Because see, we just got done with Serve Sunday. And well over 100 people signed up to serve. And that's wonderful. But this is why it's easy to serve in the church. But it's hard to pray. This is why it's easy to organize an event in the church. But it's hard to pray. This is why it's easy to... Be busy for God, but hard to pray and spend time with God. This is why it's easy to encourage people with our words, but it's hard to spend time in prayer for them. That's one of the things that I dislike so much about Facebook. People will comment on there, praying for you. Are they really? The Lord checked me one day. The Lord checked me one day. And he said, don't comment it unless you're going to do it. So now every time if I comment on there that I'm praying for you, nine times out of ten, I stopped what I was doing right then and prayed. That's why it's easy to encourage people with our words, but it's hard to do the thing that brings the most results. And that's why the devil, the world, and our flesh want to keep us distracted From the war room of prayer. Can I tell you that I showed a house recently in real estate that had a room labeled the war room. Well, can I tell you if you was the prospective buyer, you probably wouldn't have wanted this preacher as your real estate agent. Because I caught myself describing what a war room of prayer was to some people that didn't have any idea what it was. And I said, I happen to know the lady that owns this house. I'm not her real estate agent, but I know the lady who owns this house. And she's a woman of faith. And I guarantee you it's labeled war room because this is the little room that she comes to to pray in. Those people just kept looking at me and I just kept talking and finally it hit me. Sean, they want to see the house. They're not that interested in the power of prayer. But can I tell you, that's why the enemy will try to keep you distracted. From your war room of prayer. The devil will throw worldliness at us to make us forget God. The devil will attack you with entertainment and sports. To hinder your times of prayer. What are 99% of people in front of the TV for? Entertainment or sports? Sports. We spend far much more time in front of our TVs than we do in a time of prayer. The devil will use impatience to cause us to resort to taking matters into our own hands. How many times have you prayed for something over and over, and then you finally just decided, okay, God, you're not going to fix it. I'm going to do it myself. Then how many times have you made a mess of it? Let me tell you something else the enemy will use. The enemy will also use ignorance of Scripture. To cause us to fall into anxiety and fear. When we don't read the word, we don't know the word. The devil will use unbelief to rob us of the spiritual benefits that rightfully belong to us. But the remedy for all of these attacks is found in scripture. Three, I'm going to mention very quickly, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Devote yourselves, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind. A thankful heart. Psalm 55 16 and 17. But I will call on God and the Lord will rescue me. Morning, noon, and night I cry out in my distress and the Lord hears my voice. Can I tell you every time you cry, the Lord hears your voice? Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 as the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that can cannot be expressed in words. Listen, there is a fight in the church for us to forget our past. Not just the immediate past of this local church. The enemy wants you to forget what happened two weeks ago in this church on a Sunday morning when we assembled for just regular service. But every time I got ready to dismiss, somebody else gave another testimony and somebody else accepted Jesus. The enemy wants to make us forget not just our immediate past, but he also wants us to forget the past of the modern-day Pentecost at large, if you will. That's why I went over all of these historical documented accounts of revival all throughout history. And if you read the accounts, I want to talk more about one right now for just a few moments before I close. But if you read the accounts of the Azusa Street Revival from such writers as Frank Bartleman, and more modern writers like Cecil Robeck, you will discover that the powerhouse of those revivals took place in an atmosphere of prayer, fasting, preaching, and holiness. And leading up to the revival at Azusa, William Seymour and some other faithful servants of God spent weeks, weeks in prayer and fasting all the while. Listen to me. All the while holding down full-time jobs. They weren't able to, and nothing against this, but they weren't privileged to work for the university and be a student there and cancel classes for two weeks. They contended for weeks in prayer and fasting all while holding down full-time jobs. They had demands to attend to just like you and I do. But you know what the difference was? There was a hunger born in them for something greater than what they had ever experienced. I want to ask you this morning, what could happen to this church and this city if a spirit of prayer, sacrifice, godly hunger, and holiness got inside of us? I want to tell you what would happen. Many of the challenging problems that we face in this life would suddenly be solved by a miraculous move of the Holy Spirit. I want you to, re, to, to listen to what I read that was taken from Cecil Robeck in his document of the Azusa Street Mission and Revival. And actually this was by George Studd, whom you probably heard of as well. If you, if you study any theologians and, and older preachers, if not... Uh, that's one of who he was. Here's what he said. Here's what he said about the Azusa Street Revival. He said, I saw too that they had a wonderful spirit of prayer upon them. I never had seen such people pray. Such liberty and unction in prayer. And such continuance in prayer. And that not merely public at public meetings and altar services. But in cottage prayer meetings. In all nights of prayer. In private prayer meetings and in the smaller gatherings of two and three, how remarkably I have found them in the spirit of prayer over and over again. Anyone who reads the accounts of worship at the Azusa Street Mission will conclude that prayer was probably the centerpiece of that entire revival. It's the medium through which all other activities at the mission must be viewed from the singing that we heard, to the personal testimonies that they heard, to the preaching, and then the time that was spent at the altar before the service began and after the service began. When I was studying this week, I thought, how awesome would it be for me to get ready to start service and the altars already be full of people seeking the face of God and the power of God. Pastor William J. Seymour was a man of prayer. He dedicated himself to pray for hours each day prior to the coming of the revival. And while he attended many of the meetings under his leadership, he didn't attend them all. Because he attempted to continue this discipline of prayer. Prayer and the meditation of scripture gave him the thoughts that he desired to share in his sermons. Some of the most powerful documented sermons ever preached. Prayer. Especially spontaneous and boisterous prayer seem to bathe all the events of that revival. So I want to conclude with this this morning. If there's a reason the church world today, and don't get me wrong, we are seeing some revival. But if we really want to see a great awakening that spreads far beyond just one location in central Kentucky. We have to get past the weariness that the church is facing today. The weariness. Some of the weariness we have brought on our own selves. If you're too busy for God... You're too busy. If we're too busy to pray, we're too busy. As a pastor, sometimes I find myself trying to be here and there when I really should just get somewhere and pray. My mama used to say, Get somewhere and sit down. Just get somewhere and pray. The remedy for weariness, though, is perseverance. We got to persist in our praying. That means we'll have to make a conscious effort to keep praying no matter what. But listen to me, I'm almost finished. The vast difference, the vast difference in those who get answers from God and those who do not is the willingness to prevail in prayer despite the weariness of the battle. How long did Moses keep his hands raised to God in prayer? I'll tell you how long until Amalek was defeated. How long did Joshua hold out the javelin toward Ai while the army attacked? I'll tell you how long. Until Jericho was completely destroyed. How long did Elijah stay on his knees in prevailing prayer after the three year drought? He stayed there until it rained. Until the clouds formed in the sky. How long did Jesus himself pray in the garden of Gethsemane? He prayed until his sweat became as great drops of blood as Satan was defeated. How long were the disciples to tarry in prayer in Jerusalem? How long did Jesus tell them? Until they were endued with power from on high. And how long did the 120 continue in prayer in the upper room? They prayed until the Holy Ghost fell. If you'll come to the music this morning. Church, I want to tell you something. The devil is a clever enemy. I said the devil is a clever enemy. He's full of deceptive tricks. And he has a strategy that works. That he works with in every single battle. He's got a different strategy. And sometimes we think we've all been here sometimes we think he's defeated but when we ease up he comes right back and it's the same battle over again but with Moses Aaron and her on the mountainside lifting their hands in prayer Joshua prevails when Joshua would start the route of Amalek when that army would begin to retreat Moses would ease his weary arms down because they were tired (laughs) but as soon as he did immediately the picture would change Amalek would rally their forces they would attack again so again Moses would lift his hands in prayer when he did Joshua would gain the upper ground and he'd start that Wrapped in that retreat of troops all over again. But as soon as Moses began to relax, Amalek would recover, he'd return with a vengeance. And the lessons that we learn out of this story in Scripture today is obvious. Visible victories are dependent upon a spiritual battle. Visible victories are dependent upon a spiritual battle. But the victories that we do gain must be followed with continual, relentless attacks until that enemy is totally defeated. Totally defeated. We have to keep praying, church, when we're weary. We have to keep praying when we're discouraged. We have to keep praying when we're tired in the battle. We have to keep praying. If you'll stand with me all over the room this morning. I want to share one more passage of Scripture with you. Found in the book of Luke, chapter 11. Verses 5 through 8. Jesus was teaching them more about prayer He used this story He said suppose you went to a friend's house At midnight Wanting to borrow three loaves of bread You say to him A friend of mine has just arrived for a visit And I have nothing for him to eat And suppose he calls out From his bedroom He don't even come to the door Calls out from his bedroom and says Don't bother me The door is locked for the night And my family and I are all in bed I can't help you Jesus said, but I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Jesus was teaching them something about prayer. This pastor stopped by here to tell you this morning, You might be weary in what you've been praying about. You might be weary from the battle that you've been facing. But if you'll find yourself yourself, don't find somebody else. Find yourself a place of prayer and you'll keep knocking and knocking and knocking. Jesus himself was teaching here. He will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shamelessness persistence but I can't be persistent in prayer for you it's time that the church that calls themselves the church learns how to get a hold of the horns of the altar for themselves this is a message to people that should be spiritually mature now if you're a new convert you're just learning about prayer and don't let that bother you don't let that hinder you. But you hear this preacher this morning, find yourself a personal place of prayer. But to those of us that say we're spiritually mature, let's stop giving the devil credit. I said let's stop giving the devil credit. I hear more people say, I'm more out with this. I, I can't I don't I can't deal with this anymore. Why me? Why Let's stop giving the devil credit. Let's get up to the horns of the altar. And let's keep knocking on the door until we find Jesus do what he promised in this word that he would do. And that is get up and give you whatever you need. So I don't know what it is you need this morning, but here's what I know. They're going to sing. We're going to find a place of prayer. And I want everybody that will to find a place of prayer and join us this morning. And let's knock on the door of heaven together. If you don't have anything else to pray for, let's ask God for revival. That'll reshape and shake the church as we know it. Revival. That'll turn the city upside down. Revival. That your lost people will get saved. Let's get a hold of the horns of the altar. And let's knock on heaven